This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Caitlin Sidorsky, and her book, her new book from the University Press of Kansas is All Roads Lead to Power, Appointed and Elected Paths to Public Office for U.S. Women. This is an incredibly well-written and really fascinating book full of many surprises for many of us, um, but I'm going to let Caitlin tell us a little bit about that. But first, I want to ask Caitlin Sidorsky to tell us a little bit about herself, how she came to this project. Sure. So thank you for having me. Um, this project probably actually started back when I was an undergrad and a politics and law major at Bryant University and really intrigued by individuals who were never elected to office. I think that's where it's kind of all started is these individuals who have a lot of power, but were never elected to office. And an undergrad that manifested in an interest in first lady scholarship. And then once I got to Brown in my PhD program, and kind of evolved into this interest uh, in appointees. I was, I was really fascinated by um, unelected positions, um, what they do, what we knew about them, which unfortunately was very little, <laughs> um, and uh, particularly women's role um, in these appointed positions. Of course, when I was an undergrad and I was interested in first lady studies, that was all women, right? You know, so um, I was intrigued by this kind of gender aspect and, you know, in graduate school, I was exposed to the political ambition literature and why we have low numbers of women in office. And, you know, it all kind of came together, um, you know, during my third year, my prospectus year at Brown, where I was kind of confronted with this question of, um, you know, are women actually someplace else, right? Are women just not serving in elected office? Are they serving in political appointments? Um, why would they go into appointment versus running for elected office, which many of them seemed not to be interested in doing? Um, and that really came to a head um, during the 2012 presidential election between Republican Mitt Romney and President uh, Barack Obama. And I was just really fascinated by Mitt Romney during the second presidential debate talking about his experiences as a governor and not getting a lot of women um, from his staff to potentially appoint um, within his cabinet. And that really kind of just solidified this interest and this intrigue to me about, okay, what's happening here? What's happening at the state level? Where are the women? Who are the women? And, and what are they doing? And that's really 
where where the project came from was this kind of deep interest in women's pathways to power and how the appointed route kind of fit into that because I felt that that was a missing part of the story of what I what I had been taught at least. And that was of course the famous quote um at the debate of binders full of women. Yeah. Um which has, you know, now become like a meme and groups are titling themselves that um but your your research is actually looking at um you know the the fact that Mitt Romney did ask for you know sort of information about who can we appoint to office um and what you've done in this book is really a systematic exploration of there are women and they are in appointed office um, and who are they and where are they? And to some degree, how does this work with politics, which I also found to be really fascinating with regard to your research. So I wanted to ask you first a little bit about that slightly theoretical question um, that also kind of concludes your book, but also starts it um, in terms of we think about women in elected office. There's a lot of research. And you say that's true. But what about this other path? And how is it politics, but not politics at the same time? Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So I think this came in a large part from the type of the differences between the appointed route and the elected route itself, and how much the women really spoke about those differences. Um, you know, when I had interviewed them and in their surveys, um, I think we take for granted that um, there's a pathway that maybe has less resistance to it <laughs> um, in terms of appointment. Um, that is also in a lot of ways has recruitment embedded in it because some of these women, you know, never even thought to go into politics or go into appointments, particularly the high level appointments. It just kind of was a job that popped up, you know, it was like something that was available to them through their networks because they had worked with governments before in, um, in their prior private sector jobs or nonprofit jobs. Um, and so, you know, the appointment route in a lot of ways is a lot less scary, is a lot less um, challenging, is a lot more private. Um, and because of that, it is a very um, intriguing, I think, pathway for women to go into um, that makes them kind of go, I can do that, right? That's something that I'm interested in. This is something really connected to my my life, my, my, my job, my interests, my children or my family. Um, and I think because we've been so in, interested in why women are not in elected office, we don't ask, well, there's another, there are other pathways. This is another office type of office here that women can go into that doesn't come with a lot of the baggage that elected office has. Um, and we should think about what it is about the nature of elected office that, that turns women off. Um, and I think for me as a scholar, I was always, I wasn't always satisfied with the idea that women just were brought up to not think well of themselves or were brought up to not have or were socialized to not think that they could do something. Um, that always bothered me in some way. I'm like, that, I felt like that was kind of a, like they were victims of how they were brought up. I always felt like there needed to be more, you know, thought process here and, and giving credit to women that they were thinking about these pathways and thinking about politics 
um, in ways that were real and concrete and matter. And when we think about appointments as another option, which a lot of women go into, we see that they are you know, really thinking about these options and going, yeah, that's not for me. And that's not for me for very specific reasons. And we should give them credit for that. And and so to sort of follow up on that, just to sort of flesh out what we're talking about here, and also the, the sort of breadth of your work in this book is appointments at the state and local level. Can you extrapolate and explain a little bit about the, the term itself, what an appointment is versus, you know, uh, many of us know, but you, you know, you dig really deep into this and you surveyed a lot of folks and you interviewed a lot of people. And so this is sort of, again, the sort of basis of your research. What are we talking about in terms of appointments? Sure. So we're talking anything from a board and commission that meets, you know, maybe four times a year. So a good example of this may be like a regulatory board, like a barber board. So every, pretty much every state um, has very specific regulatory boards um, that, of course, regulate particular industries so that when you go to the barber, you know you're going to someone um, who is licensed, who's passed the test, who has kept up their license um, with the board, with the state, uh, so that you don't come out with a a terrible haircut, for example, Um, or you go to the dentist or the chiropractor and they, they actually know what they're doing. Um, Or if something happens, like you have a terrible experience at the chiropractor or the dentist, you can go to this regulatory body at the state level and say, hey, I want to report this. Like, this is what happened, you know, and and they can follow up and, you know, potentially um, provide some type of, you know, um, like investigatory um, arm to to check to make sure this person is doing what they're supposed to be doing according to state regulations. Um, So it's anything from that. Um, to some high-powered boards and commissions, like, for example, like a state board of education um, that really controls the policymaking realm of um, the executive branch in terms of education policy, um, uh, to a a commissioner, uh, like a commissioner of a department. So that's kind of like a cap, could be a cabinet level position, um, doesn't always have to be. And they're the, they're the head, they're the face, um, they're the leader of a health department for the for the state, or they're the deputy, uh, you know, commissioner for that department uh, within the state. Um, And then, of course, you have other maybe more specific full-time appointees who may be more in charge of, uh, let's say, like uh, the legal, the legal realm, you know, of their department or the media, the press secretary, right? These are all the types of appointments that could be included um, and that I include in my study um, that is a little bit un- more unique from other appointment studies because they most appointment studies stop at the high appointee level. And that's the that's the full time appointee. That's the commissioner. That's the deputy commissioner. That's the agency leader. Most people don't look at boards and commission members mainly because they're, they're hard <laughs> to track down. Um, uh, uh, but most people don't look at boards and board and commission members. The typical appointee studies will stop at, at that high appointee level. And so one of the things that's unique about your your work and your research is that you drill down as much as you could to lower and lower levels, different forms of appointees and different boards, ones that were paid, ones that were volunteer, mm-hmm. um, to try to amass 
the data to give you some solid information about who's on these boards. Is that correct? Yes, because, you know, in part because there's so little that we know about these lower level appointments, you know, for the book, I had to kind of balance that. I had to balance what I wanted to know in terms of the this pathway for women and what they thought about this pathway, but then also just kind of providing a brief primer for people on this is what you do. Like, this is what it is. You know, you know most people hear about, you know, a forestry commission and they think they know what it does, but they might not know exactly how powerful or not powerful it is. Um, you know, so that's what the the book has to, my book had to do was it had to kind of balance this in terms of, okay, let me teach you about what is this even, because most people don't know what it is. Um, and then, you know, kind of say, okay, now this is, and this is where women come in. This is how it's a part of, of the pathway. And, and so in that context, I also wanted to sort of bring you um, a little bit more fully into what you did find as you were pulling together this research. You, you know, you do have this expansive research. You do note also that you're not, you're not specifically going to integrate um, the discussion of judiciary Mm -hmm. um, at the state and local level, because that is a bit of a different beast Mm -hmm. um, as you sort of explain in the book. Uh, But you also are talking about, um, the fact that there are women, right? That mm-hmm. was one of the kind of unique findings of your research um, as compared to the data that we have on women in elected office. Can you talk about some of what you found once you sort of started to pull this data together with regard to the presence of women in these jobs and appointments and positions? Definitely. So, um, you know, I found, you know, when I did the survey, it was about, you know, 2013. So, you know, comparing, you know, 2012, 2013 elected numbers to the numbers I found, um, you know, they're about anywhere from like 10, 15, in some states, 20% higher numbers of women in appointed office than there were in elected office. Um, and I know, you know, sometimes I get a little pushback because people suggest, well, maybe that's because, you know, governors or, you know, executives within, um, within state governments, maybe they, maybe they are pushing more for more women. Um, and that makes it easier. And it, that is possible that these appointers may be seeking out more women, Although I guess I would caution people to remember, you know, the Mitt Romney story, you know, of obviously, you know, there are, you know, people who work in state government who are, who are not, you know, who are not looking for, specifically looking for women or are looking within their own networks. um, And those networks are going to be white and male. Um, So, you know, there are many more women, even now, like if I compare the 2013 numbers to the 2019 numbers, there's still way more women who are serving um, in these appointments um, at all levels, right? So there's no difference between the numbers of women who are serving in boards and commissions and the numbers of women who are serving in high-level appointees. Um, It's pretty even. Um, So there's no difference there, Um, which is suggesting to me that not only potentially, as a caveat, could more executives be seeking out women, which I think they would do for high-level appointees and maybe not so low-level appointees because those don't really get a lot of knowledge or acknowledgement, but that women are saying yes, right? So even if these executives are pushing for more women, these women are saying yes. They're going, yeah, okay, I'll take that appointment. And on the other side of the spectrum, for those who are not, you know, maybe the 
exposed to recruitment, um, they're seeking these out themselves, right? They're seeing a job ad, they're seeing some something about a board position in their local newspaper. They're somehow connected with a local association within their state or within their town. Um, and they're getting exposed to, you know, the advisory board for the deaf and blind community. And they're like, oh, this is another avenue that I can I can go to. I can I can give back to my community or to a community that affects my family, like the deaf blind community, uh, by serving on this border commission. And they're seeking it out. Um, so that's what's so fascinating to me about the numbers of women who are serving is that they're much higher than in elected office. Um, and, you know, when you speak to these women, um, they're, they're doing so for very specific reasons. And, and again, this is what I find in your research to be really interesting because we do have a lot of research that we are often reading about and seeing and citing with regard to some of the issues around recruitment to run for office. Mm-hmm. Um, and what your research is showing is, yes, there's the research about running for office um, and some of the the sort of barriers and um, questions around ambition that we know there's longstanding studies on this, but that this is a whole different ball game that nobody's been paying all that much attention to. Um, and I wanted to ask you about not only that nobody's been paying all that much attention to, but also as you were doing the research, what did you find to be surprising as you were uncovering and exploring this particular sort of area with regard to these questions of gender? So there's a small segment of women in the study who who do act like those other women who run for elected office that we would expect that, you know, they always had this interest in running and, you know, someone recruited them or they finally got the courage to do it. And, and you know, they're going to serve on this appointment to get experience. And then they're going to go beyond that and they're going to run for elected office. So actually a, a woman who I had interviewed, she ended up running for the state legislature a few years later and and won is, and serves now. Um, so she's like a good example of someone who you know always had this interest, always had this ambition and kind of ran with it. But I think what is most fascinating is that there is this large segment of women in these appointments, high and low appointments, um, who can convince themselves that what they are doing is not political or is not uh, revolving around politics. Um, you know, so these women will say, well, you know, um, you know, that's that, you know, politics is elected. Politics is running for office. Politics is partisanship. Politics is nasty. And my experience on my board and commission is none of those things, or in my high appointment is none of those things. Um, so what I'm doing is not politics. It's not politics at all. Um, and I found that to be fascinating. In fact, I, I didn't even, I probably didn't even realize that I was already seeing it when I was getting emails back from the appointees when I was surveying them, because I can't tell you how many of them would email me back and say, I'm not a political appointee. And then I would email them and go, well, aren't you on this boarding commission? They go, oh yeah, I guess I am a political appointee. <laughs> okay, I'll answer your survey. Um, and so I didn't even realize then that this was just a very small piece of the pie of what I was going to find once I looked through the surveys and once I started interviewing these women. Um, and so to me, that was the the most fascinating thing is that 
they could convince themselves that what they were doing was not political, even though for me as a political scientist, I'm like, of course it's political. You are you are working for the state government. You are appointed by the state government. Some of you are getting funded by the state government in terms of compensation for your time. Like, of course, this is what po- political. Um, and they were, you know, a lot of them were really firm and going, no, no, it's not political. And I never want to be political because you can't get anything done when you're working in politics. Um, so that was probably the most fascinating thing to me about what I found, um, from, from interviewing these women. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And, and so I, I also wanted to ask you in that context is, is this also the separation from politics because you can't get anything done. And many of these people were serving in capacities where they were getting things done. Um, And at at the same time, there's this sort of question of the ambition of the individual um, in terms of pursuing or being invited to serve on these commissions. Um, How would you characterize our understanding of ambition in this context? Mm -hmm. So I would say that our understanding of ambition in this context is probably a a little misguided because because we put so much emphasis on the political part of it, on the politics part of it, that people are doing this or women who go in or anyone who goes into politics does this to, to make a difference for political purposes. I think that we misunderstand or mischaracterize that women see a boarding commission appointment or even a high level appointment as just part of their career ambition. It it just happens to be a part of state government that for many of them, it it, it could be, it doesn't have to be. It's just, it just happens to be a part of state government. Um, And this is really more part of their individual career uh, ambition. So, you know, you know, people who serve on um, regulatory boards, you know, for like health professions, you know, these are really well-known doctors, nurses, chiropractors, dentists in their fields who believe passionately in their, in their, in their work. Um, and, you know, are also part of their, you know, professional organizations outside of this board and commission, which is typically how they get exposed to serving on the board and commission. Um, and so serving on the board and commission is just, you know, it's just like another kind of checkbox for their career and that, that they had the opportunity to have a voice for people within their profession um, when it comes to regulations. Um, there's also the other side of this um, are people who are doing this not necessarily because of their career, but because of personal interest or personal ambition. So we can't discount, you know, all of those boards and commissions, many of which who, which are advisory, um, 
you know, that are very much deeply connected to people's personal lives. You know, if you had a traumatic brain injury, there's a lot of traumatic brain injury councils, um, you know, women's councils, African-American councils. And these are things that are very closely related to people's personal lives, experiences, or families. And there's an ambition there not to be this big political powerhouse, but to give back to their community or give recognition to their community. Um, And that's, I think, really powerful and a really different way of thinking about ambition of kind of just kind of taking out (laughs) the political part and going, okay, well, why are they serving? Why are they doing this? For a lot of it, it's for a lot of people, it's personal. For a lot of other people, it's career. And this is just, just happens to be one avenue through which they can kind of give in and feed that ambition. And this goes to, to some degree, a kind of traditional understanding of public service. Does it not? Yeah, I think it does. You know, I think, you know, um, you know, I think we've gotten so uh, swayed by the career politician um, and, you know, what that means and fighting for that, you know, big position and, you know, just having the power that we kind of forget, well, why did, why did people have an interest in the first place? Why did people stand up at a town hall meeting or even go to that town hall meeting or go to vote or, you know, consider an appointment? You know, why do they do these things? And for a lot of people out there, it's not because they just want to be powerful or have power. It's because they want to do something and, and give back and and say that they you know, represented themselves, their families, their professions, certain diseases, certain communities um, in a way that was that was helpful. You know, they just want to be helpful is, I guess, the way I can think of a lot of these people who, you know, I interviewed and surveyed. They just want to be helpful and give back. And so I wanted to ask you also in the research you found kind of um, what you called glass walls as opposed to glass ceilings. Um, And this had to do with where the women sort of were appointed and the capacities in which they were serving as compared to some of their male colleagues on boards and commissions and in appointed office. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by this term glass walls um, and what you saw in your research in this regard? Sure. So glass walls refer to, you know, this the sometimes very (laughs) permanent or strong structures that prevent um, women or actually individuals from underrepresented groups in general from moving laterally within a bureaucracy. So when we study glass walls, we typically find that women are much more likely to be found in, in career civil service and in appointments in things like health departments or the education department. Why? Because those are generally feminized, right? It's generally when we typically associate those those kind of topics with women, whereas you're much more likely to find men in um, like state police or state fire department or transportation or commerce. These are things that um, are more masculinized, and and it's typically difficult for a woman to kind of break through um, into masculinized. Um, areas. And so, you know, my, uh, what I found, you know, backs this up, you know, most of the women or more of the women that I had surveyed 
um, were found in the health department, um, a little bit more in environmental departments, although depending upon where you are in the environmental department, and if the state has kind of a co-environmental or natural resources department, that can kind of become a little bit more masculinized. Um, and they were definitely less likely to be found in my kind of most, my most male friendly, I guess you should say department, which would be commerce. Um, they were kind of least likely to be found there. Not, not impossible. They didn't, it's not like they didn't exist. And there were plenty of women in high powered positions in those departments. Um, but they were definitely less likely to, to be there. Um, and, you know, I didn't, for so many of these women, they, they were in, you know, health departments or the environment department, because, you know, that's what their career dictated. You know, they had worked for an insurance agency for many years, or they were at the head of a, um, a nonprofit dealing with mental health. Um, then it makes sense that their pathway would include a health department at the state level and probably wouldn't include a commerce department, unless it's a very odd looking commerce department. Um, so a lot of this is because this is where you just naturally find women, um, I think, you know, in the private sector is that they're more likely to be, you know, in the healthcare nurses, right, for example, than they are to be in other sectors, you know, such as, you know, police officers or private security or, or things of that nature. You know, there's, of course, a whole literature that, you know, kind of talks about why this is the case, you know, that women go in certain areas and men go in other areas. Um, but I, I at least found that this is still the case, that we're definitely seeing these glass walls. They're still present. I never got the sense, however, that these women were, none of the women ever said to me, well, I really wanted to go to a different department, but, you know, I just couldn't, you know, they, it was, you know, they were, they don't like women working there. I never got anything of that nature. Um, it was all that, no, this was just a part of my career path and I took it. Um, and, and so in, and also in the book, you, Talk about this question of these, the thinking about these positions not being political, but also what is the role of partisanship in all of this? What did you find? Um, that most of the women hate it. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. So what I found fascinating was, you know, when I asked, you know, you know, it's a typical survey question of, you know, of a one to seven scale, you know, very liberal to very conservative or, you know, very supportive of the Democratic Party or very supportive of the Republican Party, you know, kind of where do you, where do you put yourself? Um, and although the vast majority of the book is about the appointees, I do have a chapter on the uh, state legislators. It's just kind of like a comparison chapter. Um, and when you look at the chart, um, for asking that question to state legislators, they, you know, it's, it's a very clear, like you, you know, there's, they're, they're high on the sides for partisanship and there's very few who are moderate. When you look at the graph or the chart for the appointees, um, it's a lot more in the middle. They're a lot more moderate and they're actually not very likely to be, to be partisan. Um, so I, I think in some ways they put their money where their mouth is by saying like, yeah, I don't like partisanship because I think that's nasty. You can't get things done. You know, a lot of the high appointees would say, you know, I have a front row seat as, you know, the commissioner of my health department to how the legislature works. And I can see how dysfunctional it is and I'm not interested. <laughs> and it's dysfunctional because they think of polarization and partisanship. 
Um, and so, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, they live up to their beliefs by saying like, yeah, I'm not interested in elected office because it's really partisan and really polarized and it's negative. Um, and I personally do not subscribe <laughs> to real partisan rhetoric. Like even in their personal lives, they would not describe themselves as really partisan um, when they go to vote or when they think about policies. Um, and I, you know, I even there's a quote of, uh, of one woman in the book. Um, who's a high appointee, um, and she flat out tells the governor who's recruiting her for this high appointment, and she really didn't want to go into politics. And she said to him point blank, "I will not. I will not campaign for you. I will not go to um, party meetings. I will not go to party events. I will not do it. So don't ask me because if that is a part of the job, I will not be doing it because I am not interested in that." And he still hired her despite her kind of very clear blanket policy of I'm not doing the partisan stuff. And that's kind of, that's pretty common among a lot of the women in the study. And I mean, I think I find this really fascinating because there is this like disconnection from politics and partisanship and yet participation in the sort of public life and politics. Yes. Yeah. I mean, they're the face of their state government's department or, you know, a certain sector of their state government's department. Um, and they acknowledge that they are influencing a lot of people through state government. Um, and, you know, I think maybe the one difference between high and low appointees is that the high appointees couldn't couldn't entirely escape the acknowledgement that they were going into politics, right? You know, because, you know, there's quite a few quotes of these women saying that they struggled with the decision, but that in the end, they ended up acquiescing and saying, okay, I'll do it because they were able to convince themselves because it wasn't as political as other places. They could still get a lot done and be really helpful um, in their field, uh, even though it was in politics because it just wasn't as political as elected office, um, which was just this kind of struggle, you know, and I could hear it in the interviews was fascinating to me of, you know, that they had to convince themselves that, okay, yes, this is politics, but it's not, you know, the politics that most people think about, you know, this is better politics. Um, You know, that was just, that was really fascinating to me. And, you know, to be honest, you know, uh, you know, I start and end the book with Elizabeth Warren. I mean, I think Elizabeth Warren, you know, in her autobiography struggles with this as well, that she's like, oh, man, I could give back so much by serving on this bankruptcy commission, but I really don't like politics and it's a really bad place, right? And I think she can, you know, she, you know, this high profile woman who's now running for president of the United States, um, even she struggles with this early on in her career. And then when she decides to run for the Senate. And I mean, and you do an interesting job by introducing the book and the and the research through Elizabeth Warren and Elaine Chow, right? Mm-hmm. Um, both women who, I mean, Elaine Chow has never run for public office, but has held many, many, many positions. Um, and Elizabeth Warren, who, you know, sort of came to it, as you note, somewhat not as what she thought she would be doing. Very reluctantly. Um, <laughs> And I don't expect that I will ever see Elaine Chao running for public office. She will continue to have likely, you know, sort of presidential appointments. Mm-hmm. But, you know, she does she does campaign with her husband, though, I believe. Mm-hmm. So she's yeah. not as disconnected as some of the people that you did interview. 
And a lot of people don't know, you know, about Elaine Chow because, you know, some people question like, oh, well, you know, she's got, you know, you know, a you know, Senate majority leader as a, as a, as a spouse or at the very least, you know, had a senator for a spouse. But, you know, her career trajectory and appointments started way beyond before she met him. Um, you know, so this was a pattern. This was a career path that she had dedicated herself to before she was ever, you know, you know, in ex- more, I guess, more exposed to the electoral realm and electoral politics. Um, and my gosh, if I ever had the opportunity to have like a frank conversation with her, I would love to ask her, how has being exposed to elected politics and partisanship so <laughs> personally, how has that influenced why you never considered running for elected office? And I looked so hard for quotes from her or interviews from her and no one has ever really asked her or at least I couldn't find it about why she's never run for elected office um because I would love gosh I would love to be able to ask her that because I I wouldn't be surprised if she her answer was similar to these other women saying I can do I, I can do more my area of expertise is in you know the executive branch and that's what I can do best and so um, I, I did want to ask you, because you do so much work in terms of the research to build the information, can you talk a little bit about the research design, both your surveys and your interviews and you know how you, how you amass the data and, and who you spoke with and surveyed? Sure. So um, first, you know, you have to start off with getting an understanding of what's available in terms of just understanding the, the, the landscape, right? So, you know, how many boards and commissions exist? What are what are they and the people who serve on them? And to be honest, some states do a very poor, poor job of uh, recording that information, or at least finding that information, difficult, you know, easy to find. Um, you know, so uh, you know, I've gotten questions of, well, why didn't you do like New York State or Texas? Be- because I could not, I could not easily or even moderately, you know, find the information <laughs> right on those states. I would have loved to have included those states, but you know, just even finding out what boards and commissions they had was was Im- almost impossible. Five, six, seven years later, maybe I'm hoping that their websites are better. Um, But, you know, that's part of the challenge. And that actually gets rid of, you know, a a good number of states um, to begin with. Um, And then once you kind of get the sense of, okay, I I think I can work with these sites or um, these lists of appointees, um, you know, then it's, you know, deciding on which department. So for this project, I only focused on four departments because I was doing 20 states. Um, and that was environment, natural resources, commerce, and health departments. Um, and I did those four departments because it's a, you know, it's kind of a range of, you know, women who serve in them. You know, obviously most uh, women friendly is health department, least is typically commerce or natural resources. Um, so I was kind of able to capture, you know, differences there, geographical differences, partisan differences. So I made sure, you know, kind of to diversify on that. And then it's, slogging through <laughs> um, the de- the websites of, um, it depends, some states you have to go through um, the Secretary of State's website. Other states, they have just kind of one portal. So, it you know, people always laugh, but North Dakota, thank you so much, North Dakota, for having <laughs> just a wonderful, wonderful website um, that has all this beautiful information about all your co- boards and commissions in one place. Um, North Dakota. Yes, I know. Right now with with contact information. Um, So 
uh, amassing, um, you know, the lists of just the board and commissions, then finding out if I can get the names. Typically, I can get most of the names. And then it's backtracking um, through most of the states to try and go to the individual board websites, potentially, to see if I can get contact information. If I couldn't get contact information, I would try and go back through again, because you know, for some of these boards and commissions, you know, there were people who were, you know, notable doctors in their fields, or I could see that it was an appointee from, you know, a state university. Well, I can go back and try and find that person, you know, on another place that's not a state government website and try and find their email address. Because um, that's mainly how I did it is I did it through email. Um, it would have been way too costly. Um, and I wouldn't have had the time um, for a telephone, but it would have been way too costly to do it through mail. Plus the question of, you know, it's hard enough finding their email address, uh, finding their home address would have been very, very difficult to have done. And I was a little skeptical of sending kind of just like a bulk, you know, packet of surveys um, to um, the board and commission, you know, physical address. Um, so I decided to do email, which, uh, you know, I, you know, I had, you know, a little over 30 percent of a response rate, which I thought was pretty decent. Um, and, uh, you know, that was kind of the the background of finding these people and getting their information. In terms of the survey, um, you know, it was a balance between, uh, I wanted to know, you know, the easy demographic stuff of who they were. Um, but then I also wanted to know, you know, where they had been, you know, so what was their background, how they got to their position, and then what they were thinking about the future. So that's how I kind of constructed the survey was, okay, tell me about what, where you've been, Okay, tell me about how you got to where you are and why you got to where you are. Now tell me, okay, are you interested in doing anything else beyond this? And then just tell me about who, who you are, you know, your background, your age, your race, your ethnicity, and your gender. Um, and then for the interview, um, it was it was really just, it was structured around, again, those kind of like three kind of main ideas of where you've been, how you got to where you are, slash what are you doing now and where you want to go in the future and getting the stories, getting the context. You know, so I could ask someone, have you ever been recruited? But I don't know what they think recruitment is or what that type of recruitment looked like to them. Or, you know, they could tell me that, no, they were never interested in running for elected office. But I don't have the context in the survey of the why. Um, and so the interviews were really structured around, okay, but why, you know, why did you answer this way? Or why do you feel this way? Um, which I think provided some really interesting stories to tell um, of these women and their, and, and, and their career trajectories. And that's, I mean, I think this is a really fascinating study, as you know, because one really hasn't been done like this. And you got some fascinating input from the people you were able to talk to and who were able to respond to your survey. So, I mean, I, I think it's a great building block too, um, in terms of our thinking about not only these, this road to power, as you say, um, in the title of the book, but also this question of what do we mean by politics and, and how do we think about politics? And maybe there's a, a gender bifurcation about how we think about politics. Um, so my next question to you is, 
Caitlin, what are you working on now? Are you building on this or are you going in a completely different direction? Um, well, so both, I guess. I have I have a secondary project with uh, with uh, Wendy Schiller Brown, um, my former dissertation advisor on domestic violence policy at the state and local level and federalism. Um, and so that's kind of like my other like baby that we've been working on for a, a while. Um, but for this project, yes, I am definitely building off of this project um, in, in a couple of ways. So, um, you know, my study, you know, I decided to go broad originally in terms of capturing more states than capturing more departments, uh, which would have given me more depth. And now I'm going to be going back and I have been going back um, to these states, um, four of them in particular, um, and looking at literally every board and commission appointment that they have. Um, so I've, I'm moving away from the high appointees because I find them fascinating and they're really interesting, but I feel like there's, there's just still so much we don't know about boards and commissions um, that this is kind of the area that I really want to go I want, I want to go to next. Um, so my next project is uh, looking at four states, all of their boards and commissions, all of their appointees um, on those boards and commissions, um, and one, trying to get a better understanding of how different departments and agencies um, may have different numbers of women on the board and commission level, because we got a, I got a sense of that a little bit you know, from my survey, but now I really want to kind of deep dive into this. Um, also to try and understand, you know, and I, I do it a little bit, but I want a, an even better understanding of, okay, not just, okay, are more women on, you know, um, you know, health boards or education boards, but also are women on boards that are less likely to be paid or women on boards that are, um, uh, less or more likely to be advisory as opposed to policymaking, um, so that's kind of the, the next aspect of it. Um, understanding, you know, does, you know, can we can we understand about who appointed them or the governor who was at the time who appointed them? Um, does that make it more likely or less likely that they'll have women on those boards and commissions? Um, and then the, the final part of it, um, which I'm, I'm really intrigued by, um, will be to actually sit in on some of these meetings. Um, you know, so they're public meetings. Um, and at the very least, some places have the meeting minutes and whatnot. Um, I would really love for this next part of the project to, to sit down and, and sit in some of these meetings and just kind of look at the gender dynamics. You know, how often are women speaking? Are women supporting other, other women on these boards and commissions? Are they being shot down by maybe other male commission members um, or just their ideas not listened to? Um, so that's kind of the 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 next iteration <laughs> of this project is you know better understanding how these boards and commissions function generally and how women function on these boards and commissions more specifically so when you finish that book will you come back on the new books and political science podcast and talk to me about it oh definitely i still you know i i'm very fortunate because I know of a lot of people who, after they work on a project for a long time and finally publish a book or an article from it, that they're like, oh, I don't want to look at this again. But I still love my project. I still love <laughs> I still love the topic. I still have so many questions I want answered. And I love the people who I was very fortunate to interview and survey who are very kind and generous with their time. Um, so yes, as much as I can talk about this project, as, as 
as best as possible for me. <laughs> well, I, I look forward to to reading more of your work um, in part because it was just a joy to read. Um, and I want to thank you for joining me today on the New Books and Political Science podcast. I was joined by Caitlin Sidorsky, whose new book is All Roads Lead to Power, Appointed and Elected Paths to Public Office for U.S. Women. This book was published by University Press of Kansas in 2019. And Caitlin, where can somebody pick up a copy of your book? Sure. So you can definitely get it at the University Press of Kansas's uh, website, um, which is really great. Um, and you can also get it from, you know, online, you know, from Amazon, um, over Barnes and Noble. Um, those are definitely the, the best places t- to look for it. Great. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much. My pleasure.